This is part five of a six-part series called The Bible, and I pray it's been helping you get a better understanding of this amazing divine library we call the Word of God. Now, my job, my role as a Christian leader, as a pastor, as a, as a teacher is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means you. I'm to equip you for the work of the ministry. And so I hope through this series you are feeling a little more equipped when it comes to what makes up God's statute book, the Bible, the Biblios. So what have we looked at so far? In part one, we explored the uniqueness of the Bible. It is the undisputed heavyweight champion of the book world. Number one bestseller every year for the last 50 years and many years before that. It sold 3.9 billion, that is billion copies, being translated into over 3,300 languages, more than any other book in history. Considered to be some of the finest literature ever written, it has been used as the foundation, listen, for most of our modern laws and ethics. It's unique. In part two, we discuss what it means when we say the Bible is inspired by God. We saw the Bible as a product of both God and humans, yet its writing was supernaturally guided and divinely inspired to convey precisely and exactly what God wanted it to. The authority of the Bible, we learned, the authority of the Bible comes not from the caliber of its human authors, but from the character of its divine author. In part three, we looked at how we got what we call the Bible today. We talked about what is known as the canon of Scripture. We saw early Jewish and church leaders did not create the canon. They recognized it. They recognized it. Over time, leaders merely recognized the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 of the New Testament where God breathed, were inspired by God. In part four, we saw the weight of biblical manuscripts in comparison to all other historical documents is overwhelming. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 further proved that the Bible we read is indeed the same one that the early church fathers affirmed. The Bible we have today is the same Bible they had then. And so I want to encourage you, if you've missed any of this series, if you've, uh, you know, for whatever reason you've missed, I, I'd encourage you to go back, watch, learn, and listen. And I, as I've said, I pray it equips you to have a better understanding of God's statute book, the Bible. So the question we want to look at today is mistakes and contradictions in the Bible. Are there any? Well, I think that's a good question. I think that's a fair question to ask. And I guess the crux of that question really centers around what is called the doctrine, doctrine just means teaching, around the doctrine of inerrancy or infallibility of the Scripture. The inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. Simply put, is the Bible without error? The basic argument being, if the perfect God wrote the Scriptures, or inspired the writing of it. The scriptures should be perfect, therefore there should be no mistakes. So what's the difference between 
inerrant and infallible. What's the difference? Well, inerrant means that there are no errors. Infallible means there can be no errors. So as we jump into this, an interesting thing, a little side note, an interesting thing to know is that some scholars would argue, and I think convincingly, that the Bible itself does not actually claim anywhere inerrancy or infallibility, which is an interesting discussion for sure. Also, what is meant by inerrant and infallibility means different things to different scholars. The definitions, I've got to say, are wide and broad. So it really is a very big subject, more than we can really develop in the scope of this series. Generally, though, I, and I want to walk through this, very, this next statement very slowly, but when Christian theologians say the Bible is without error or inerrant, they generally mean that when all the facts are known, the Scripture as they were penned by the authors in the original writings and as properly interpreted will be shown to be true and not false in all they affirm. I want to read that again. When all the facts are known, the Scriptures as they were appended by the authors in the original writings and as properly interpreted will be shown to be true and not false in all they affirm. See, we live in a time where we have so many Bible translations and paraphrased versions. And the fact is more are added almost every, every year, all with different focuses. You'll have uh, uh, B- uh, Bible translations with a leadership focus or with a Holy Spirit uh, focus, with a mission focus, uh, uh, this, this, uh, or, or Bible versions that are written with the, the common language, making that as easy as possible for people to understand. So you've got some easy to read versions. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt that there are better versions or better translations than others. And of course, some people get really (laughs) touchy about which one is the actual one you should be using. And it's probably the one that they're using. Our Reformed friends would would go, the ESV is the only way to go. Uh, Others uh, would say the authorized King James Version is the only Bible that should be used with all of its these and Thou's. Do you realize there are even preachers, there are like people who will go out and they will find other Christians on the street to tell them that they should only be using the King James authorized version. I, I bet you, you yourself have your own favorite version, the one you love, the one that's just like a teddy bear. It's just warm and cuddly. It's just, I love this version of the Bible, the one you like to read. But I want to say this, when it comes to inerrancy, when it comes to inerrancy, theologians for the most part are, refer- are really referring to the original writings. They're, they're, they're really referring to the original writings as they were penned by the original authors. They were not referring to the translation that you have in your hand or on your shelf. 
So the argument of which translation is the best really centers around what translation is most like or closest to the best copies of the original manuscripts. Of course, then it comes down to the correct interpretation of those manuscripts, the correct interpretation of those scriptures. When scholars have translated from Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek texts and manuscripts, have they, I guess people want to know, have they captured, understood, and conveyed the the essence of that scripture? Have, have they understood it correct? As they translate it into English, for instance, have they understood the essence of that scripture? Have they translated it correctly into our language? Have, have they caught the heart of the writer? And more importantly, have they caught the heart of God in that translation? And then on top of that, of course, it's how do we translate it? How do we interpret that which is written. And have we, when we read these translations, uh, do we interpret them correctly? Uh, again, hopefully, as the author intended. And can I just say, correct, correct interpretation, it's, it's kind of a big, it's a big deal. Because uh, let's say over the over the centuries, there has been some very interesting interpretations to justify all kinds of things using the Bible to do so. So you can, you can find, listen, if we're honest, you can find a verse in the Bible to justify just about anything you want. So let me say again, let me say again this, state, this, this statement, because I think it's important. Because for us, and, and in this message today, it really is a frame of reference that we're working from. So here we go. When theologians are talking about inerrancy of the scriptures, they generally mean, here we go, when all the facts are known, the scriptures as they were penned by the authors in the original writings and as properly interpreted will be shown to be true and not false in all they affirm. It stands to reason, right? If God is actually the author of Scripture, if he inspired certain men to reveal his words, it's reasonable, it's reasonable to think that he would not contradict himself. It's reasonable to think that his word would be error-free. And I want to tell you, I can agree with that reasoning. So does the Bible have mistakes? Does the Bible have contradictions? Of course, the critics say, yes, there are thousands of errors and contradictions in the Bible. But is that really true? Now, because the battle for the book is not new and has raged, and when I say raged, I mean, I mean raged through the centuries, there are volumes available. There are volumes of theological, apologetical, academic books for and against on this subject. For those who wish to study them in more depth. And of course, I've mentioned books like this, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and if they can, they'll put that in the, uh, uh, um, in the chat there and uh, where you can get this from. But I would encourage every home, but books like this would, would, would tackle this uh, subject. But 
I just want to say in this message that we're doing today, we really are only scratching the surface in the time we have today by looking at a couple of common examples of apparent mistakes or contradictions in the Bible text and then how they are reasoned out. For instance, critics fairly point out things like in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 2 and 3, it says that there was one angel at Jesus' tomb. At the time of his resurrection, there was one angel at Jesus' tomb. But but in Luke 24, verse 4, speaking of the same event, it refers to two angels being there. Critics say this is a contradiction. This is a mistake. Well, is it? But here, I I want you to understand, there is more here than meets the eye. Theologians would would say this. They would respond to the critics in this way. They would say this is an apparent contradiction, an apparent mistake. Well, what are they doing there? Are they just making excuses for an obvious mistake? Well, let me explain. What do they mean by apparent? The first thing we, and I've talked about this before in the life of the church, but the first thing we need to understand is the nature of the four Gospels. The nature of the four Gospels, which, if you're new to the Bible, are the first four books in the New Testament canon of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So these four Gospels, and the word Gospel simply means good news, these four Gospels are really, what are they? Four different perspectives of the life of Jesus. They're from four different authors, from four different backgrounds. For example, Matthew was a Jew, Luke was a Gentile. Gentile just is a non-Jew. So they saw the world in a different way. Now, when we look at our modern Bibles or the Bible we have on our phone app and so on, in in modern Bibles, the heading at the beginning of each gospel just says Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you look at older versions of the Bible, like the authorized King James Version, it will have the words at the beginning of each gospel. You can maybe go back and look at it right now, but it will have the These words, the gospel according to, so the good news, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Luke. So each gospel account is going to be different. Of course, if they were all the same, people would just say, oh, they just copied them off each other. But but again, these are different perspectives from different people. So let's look at the two scriptures in question. In Matthew's gospel, it says, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. In Luke's gospel, it says, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So which one is it? Is it one or is it two angels? Well, the simple answer is this. If you ask me what I did yesterday, and I said, well, I went to Rainbow's End yesterday, and it was awesome. And then later on that day, you meet Anita, and she says, Adam and I went to Rainbow's End yesterday and took the whole family. It was awesome. Which one is true? Which one is true? Well, both of them are true. Just different perspectives of the same event. What I first said left you with an impression that I had gone to Rainbow's End 
alone. I'd be crazy to do that. Anita wouldn't talk to me. She'd want, she'd, she's like, I want to come on that roller coaster. So, so again, but I gave you that impression. So that's like Matthew's gospel. But when Anita talks to you, she explains that others were there with me, and you get the fuller picture, the greater context. That's like Luke. So actually, this is not a contradiction or mistake, just a perspective. Both statements can be true, so it's an apparent contradiction, which on further investigation, it really does sort itself out. Listen, just because Matthew's gospel mentions the one angel, that does not mean that the other angel was not there. From Luke, we can clearly see there were two. Another critique often cited is that Jesus saying that he would be killed and would rise from the dead in three days in Mark 8.31. Again, technically... (laughs) Technically, Jesus wasn't in the grave for three 24-hour days. Is that a mistake? What he said? No. Listen, in Jewish culture, any part of the day was considered the whole day. There is no contradiction here. I mean, we even talk like this in our own language. I've been working the whole day. No, you haven't. You have been working from, you know, 12 a.m. to, uh, you know, a whole 24-hour period. We use that kind of language. And actually, even on that subject, people like Kevin Connor have written, written books, again, where mathematically, I'm, I'm not going to zoom in on this, but if you want to read it, you can borrow it. But again, how the three days actually do work out to full days and stuff. That's something that interests you. You can uh, grab, grab that. Look, all I'm trying to say here is that the truth is that most apparent contradictions can be explained. Like I've already said, there's a myriad of books like like this one, The Three Days and the Three Nights. There's a myriad of books that dig deep into every question and doubt raised. And here's the thing. Most arguments brought up are usually common ones. They're not new ones. It's like, oh, there's a new one. No, no. Look, many of the questions presented have already been asked and answered before. Also remember, because we are dealing only with copies of the original manuscripts and not the manuscripts, the originals themselves, there are copying errors. There are copying errors. And if one error error is made in copying down a manuscript, it makes sense. All future manuscript copies are going to reproduce that error. You know... Last week we saw while those who made the copies, scribes, we talked about them, did their best to copy things accurately. I mean, their job, let me say, it was a high pressure profession. Like I said, it wasn't just, oh, can you copy this for me? I mean, it was a real, they had to get stuff right to make a mistake. I mean, if you, if you messed up a king's edict, if you as a scribe messed up a king's edict, uh, you, you, you could be fired. In fact, friend, uh, you, you actually just wouldn't be just fired. You would be fired in the furnace, if you know what I'm saying. You would be cooked. Your goose would be cooked. I mean, they, even in the Bible, there are places where messages are killed for delivering certain. So this was a high-pressure kind of job. But, but errors in copying were made, there's no doubt, including copying of the Scriptures. 
But here's what you need to know, and this is important. Here's what you need to know. When you examine the errors, as many learned experts have done over the centuries, over the years, it is clear how they were made and that they do not alter the intended meaning of the text. For example, I'll give you some examples. Some manuscripts of the New Testament spell the name John with one N. Other times it is spelled with two N's. This technically constitutes an error, right? Now get this. Whenever a particular error like this occurs, say, say this error, the two N's, occurred in 3,000 manuscripts. That would be counted. That type of error would be counted as 3,000 mistakes. 3,000 errors, if you like. But of course, that type of error in no way changes the meaning of God's words. It's clearly a copying error. Other errors can be found in both the Old and New Testament, such as these. In 2 Chronicles 9, verse 25, some manuscripts read that Solomon had 4,000 horse stalls. But in 1 Kings 4, 26, other manuscripts say he had 40,000 horse stalls. Well, which is it? Either he was having a massive building program there, or these, how can they both be true? It is obviously the result of an overworked and perhaps sleepy scribe copying down 40 instead of four. This, again, is an understandable human error, but it doesn't change any major doctrine of faith in the Bible. In Second Chronicles 22, verse 2, most manuscripts say that King uh, uh, Isaiah was 22 years old when he took over the reign from his father, Joram. But in 2 Kings 8.26, some other manuscripts report that he was 42. Well, what was he, 42 or 22? Which one was it? Well, the reality is he couldn't have been 42. How do we know this? Because his father, Joram, it tells us in 2 Kings 8 verse 17, died at 40. And so logically, he can't be two years old. He cannot be two years older than his father. So it's a copying error. Another one that is commonly talked about is Acts 7 verse 14, where Stephen says 75 person, when he was going through giving his speech uh, before he was martyred, and hey, we've got to understand the pressure's on, right? So, so uh, Stephen says 75 persons came to Joseph from his father's household. Where the Old Testament says in three places, Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, that the number was 70. Well, which is it? Is it 75 or 70? Well, truth is, in some manuscripts, it says 70. In other manuscripts, it says 75. Now, Albert Barnes, an American 18th century theologian and clergyman, he was an abolitionist, and, um, which basically means he did all he could to see an end to slavery, a, a, a powerful man, a lot of influence, and, and he, he would preach and write against it. But he's actually best known for his commentary on the Bible, and that's where these guys go through the Bible verse by verse and, 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 and make a comment on every single verse of the Bible. Here's what he wrote regarding the whole dilemma of the 70 or 75. I, I love what he wrote. He said, the number 
of children of Israel is very particularly noted. But the scripture lays no stress upon the number itself and makes no particular application of it. It stands forth, therefore, on the record of merely as a historical fact. In other words, nothing else in the Bible is affected whether the number is 70 or 75. We saw last week that one of the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were when compared to a later manuscript copies that had a thousand years later, when, when, when they found those scrolls and they began to compare them, we, we saw that the, the then current Hebrew Bible proved to be identical word for word in more than 95% of the text. That's a, a thousand years apart. That is amazing. The other 5% consisted mainly of spelling variations. For example, of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, only 17 letters were in question. Of those, 10 letters were a matter of spelling. Four were stylistic changes. Three letters comprised of the word light, which was then added to verse 11 of Isaiah 53. See, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the greatest manuscript discovery of all time revealed that a thousand years of copying the Old Testament have produced only very minor variations, none of which altered the clear meaning of the text or brought the manuscript's fundamental integrity into question. And with the Dead Sea Scrolls being copied so much closer to the time of the original, it stands to reason that those copies that are closer to the originals are more likely to have fewer copying errors. Dr. John Gill, another 18th century English scholar and Bible commentator, he's, he's famous really or most famous for writing the largest, the singly writing, the largest Bible commentary by a single person like ever. He says this on copying errors. He says, indeed, it is more to the honor of sacred scriptures to acknowledge here, to acknowledge here and there a mistake in the copiers, especially in the historical books where there is sometimes a strange difference of names and numbers. I'll start that again because I, I want to get the flaw of this right. Indeed, it is more to the honor of the sacred scriptures to acknowledge here and there a mistake in the copiers especially in the historical, historical books where there is sometimes a strange difference of names and numbers than to give in to wild and distorted interpretations of them in order to reconcile them where there is no danger with respect of any article of faith and manners. So as we sum this up, what do we need to know? Here's what we need to know. Although there are differences in manuscripts, not one fundamental Christian doctrine of the Christian faith rests on a disputed reading. When all the facts are known, the scriptures as they were penned by the authors 
in the original writing and properly interpreted will be shown to be true and not false in all they affirm. And what do they affirm? They affirm that Christ came. They affirm that Christ came and died on the cross for our sin. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whomsoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know Him today? You might be sitting there going, man, but my life is such a mess. Listen, the Bible says all all of our life, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. God's Word says so. You can know Him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You can know Him today. How do you do that? Just say, God, be the King of my life. Be the King. But you reign on the throne of my heart. Give your life to Him. The book of Revelation tells us He stands at the door of our heart and He'll knock open that door and let Him rule and reign on your life. I encourage you to do that today. As we close... I'm going to ask my wife to come and Anita to come and uh, just pronounce a blessing over you, this ancient blessing again from the Word of God. And I pray wherever you are, just stand in your, your home, stretch out your hands and receive the, the blessing from God's Holy Word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.